I know that's a very difficult song to sing, but man, is it uh, rich with worship and meditation for us. Please find the book of Hosea. Prepare your hearts to meditate in God's Word. When we meditate in God's Word, through preaching, it's a it's a chance for you, and the God of creation, it's a chance for you and the Savior to meditate. You to think on Him and on His Word. His words work on your heart. We're primarily going to be in chapter four again today. There's a lot of cycles of speaking and preaching in, in the in the book of Hosea. It goes back and forth. It goes cyclically through promises and through curses. The story is about God's kindness to an adulterous bride. This prophecy is about God's kindness and his love to an adulterous bride. Bride, Hosea 1, 1 and 2, you recall, or if you haven't been following in the in this series, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, who is the prophet, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. These are the waning days. These are the sunset years of the nation of Israel. Verse 2 says, When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. The prophet Hosea portrays our God who has taken to himself a bride. Hosea and Gomer are married. The bride's name is Gomer. This, this woman that he has taken to himself as a picture of the nation of Israel. And then finally, it is also a picture of the church. So ultimately, for you and I, as we live in this century or these centuries of the, the new covenant age, this is a picture of the church. This is a picture, really, of an apostate church that we see through first the, the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer, and then God's relationship to the nation of Israel and then God's relationship to his church. Brides typically love their husbands and they're joined to their husbands' ambitions. They raise a family together. They make a life together. They train their children. And these children generally, typically, ideally carry on the name and the legacy of the family. That's why when we read the story of the man, Hosea, who takes this woman to himself and we witness their children and what becomes of their children in this life, it causes us great duress. It causes us to be offended and and shocked at what a horrible marriage this has turned out to be. But this marriage of Hosea teaches Israel, this marriage teaches the nation Israel and it teaches the church, who is you and I, in the last age, it teaches us of Israel's adulterous love 
and her grossly corrupt children. The names of the children are prophetically significant. The names are scatter. The first child of the marriage is scatter. Or sow, as in sowing seed. The other child's name is no mercy and the next child's name is not my people. Prophetically, the children produced in this marriage are dispersed as opposed to gathered under the umbrella or under the kingdom of God. No mercy as opposed to merciful and gracious as the people of God should be. And not my people which is just the opposite of what good children should be. They should reflect their father, but they prophetically declare God's judgment on the nation of Israel. The marriage is corrupt with a corrupt wife and a mother that has produced corrupt children. And so as we get under the layers of this prophecy, the prophecy demonstrates the effect of sin. And that's where we were at. That's what we begin to consider by the time we get to chapter 4. The effect of sin on the mind and the life. And this is really where it gets into your life. And this is where it gets into the life of the nation of Israel who is hearing or watching and hearing the prophet communicate to them. Sin distorts right and beautiful. Sin has made it so the nation of Israel, in their thinking they're doing right, they're thinking they're doing what they should be doing. What they're doing is not right. It's absolutely corrupt and it's not beautiful. It is horrendous. But sin has corrupted them. God is spirit. The woman in Samaria heard the Lord Jesus say, and it's so fascinating to me, she is in this very same region. The woman in Samaria, John chapter 4, hundreds of years after this prophecy, she lives in this area where the northern kingdom had been. What does she think about worship? What does she think about God? She's a worshiper. She claims to know God, and the Lord Jesus himself tells her, you don't know what you worship. She's a false worshiper. She doesn't know who God is. But God is spirit, she heard the Lord Jesus tell her. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So faith, the faith of the believing man or woman in this century, faith hears God's word and the spirit brings conviction and the believer is compelled to go to the Lord God in repentance and to be strengthened in the hearing of truth. Real faith, it's amazing, is only going to come by His Word and the Spirit. Real faith is... The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 gave you some things to hang real faith on. It's evidence and substance. Faith isn't something mysterious as in ethereal and with without words faith must come with the words of repentance and the words of hope faith must be the substance of the gospel and of Christ faith isn't without the substance of the gospel faith isn't without the promises of the gospel but Israel does not have this faith Israel does not have this faith 
Their faith is made up of invention. So we've seen, in, to this point, God's kindness and his love to an adulterous bride. His kindness is waiting, willing to wait for her to return to be a faithful bride. And in Hosea 4, listen to the charge. Destruction's life. The nation of Israel is living on their way to destruction. Listen how these words go in chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. And that's a crucial sentence in our understanding of the charges here. Since there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land, what follows is the result of that here in, in the second verse. So verse, verse 1 is their sin. What is their root sin? What is the main reason they sin? It's because of what they know. There's no truth. There's no mercy. There's no knowledge of God in the land. What is the result of that? What happens when there's no truth, mercy, or knowledge of God in the land? Look at verse 2. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. In the case of Israel, what does it mean that they have had no truth, mercy, or knowledge of God? We see very specific sins spelled out in their lives. There's a corrupt life that has begun to flow out of what they don't have. Verse 3 goes on to say, Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. The creation itself will suffer and be famined, famineized. The creation is going to experience the judgment of God because of the sin that is in the hearts of this people. And the sin is what they don't have. They don't have truth. They don't have mercy. They don't have the knowledge of God. So God judges not only the men and the women. He judges the land. Look at the next passage. Now let no man contend or rebuke another. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother. For my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you for being priest for me. There is a response of men mentioned here. There is a blame response. It seems that as the, as the weight of judgment begins to come onto the land and onto the people, the men themselves begin to dispute with one another about what the problem is, blaming taking place. It says, let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with a priest. 
what man contends with the priest. It's an illustration. If your priest has told you what offering you can bring, if your priest has told you how to bring offering, if your priest has told you what offering you cannot bring, if your priest has told you you can't bring it on this day, put yourself in the context of either the wilderness tabernacle or finally of the more permanent stone building and and you have been told by the priest how you're going to worship when you're going to worship or that you can't worship because you're in some sinful condition that needs to be remedied and you begin to argue with the priest what kind of a person are you that's what this illustration means he says don't contend with one another don't begin to fight and argue or blame one another about what's happening here. Don't be stupid. He says, these men will stumble with the prophet and their mother will be destroyed. They are like the one who is arguing with the priest. In other words, these men, these women, this nation should be in a place of hearing. They should be in a place of receiving. They should submit themselves to God himself to be corrected and to be taught. They should go to his word. They should seek truth. But that's not what they're doing. Arguing with the priest is like Cain arguing with God about what kind of an offering he should be able to bring to God. It's foolish. What do you do when God tells you what to do? You close your mouth and you do it. What do you do when you don't know? What do you do when you don't know? You have to go find the truth. You have to seek the truth. The priest for the nation of Israel is the one who who ministers the truth of how you can come to God. The northern kingdom, did they have any faithful priests? Did they have any knowledgeable priests? Not to the best of our knowledge. They would have to go to a real priest. It's not the condition of these men. And men don't really want God's instruction unless they love him. Men won't go to him and seek him unless they love him, unless they believe that he is their hope. They won't go to him. They won't learn from him unless they love him. Verse 6 speaks of their destruction. The prophet is threatening their destruction through, because of their lack of knowledge and their rejection of knowledge. They've forgotten the law of their God. They're going to be destroyed. Their children forgotten. And so what, what, what they're picturing is a complete loss of any future legacy, a complete loss of any future hope. Their destruction is coming because of what they don't know. It's directly related to truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God. Israel or the church? The church. You and I need to pay careful attention to this because the church that lacks truth, that lacks biblical mercy, biblical knowledge of God is doing exactly what is being threatened to Israel here. Corrupt knowledge. Corrupted mercy. Corrupted truth produces this destruction. Where does it come from? It comes from false teachers. How many churches in the nation 
love to flock to prosperity preachers or maybe female preachers. Beth Moore is one of the most prominent preachers in the country, a Southern Baptist preacher. Beth Moore. How do, how do Christians escape the clarity of, of the instructions to Timothy or Titus on that? How many Christians sing worship songs with Roman Catholic worship leaders? You know, if you listen to Caleb, and I don't advise it, I think you should not listen to Caleb. There are Roman Catholics writing their praise songs on Caleb that you're humming along with and you're singing along with. Put yourself in the context of Israel a thousand years ago, singing under the leadership of somebody who is not a Christian. How does God smile on that? How is God pleased with that? You understand how that is offensive to our Lord? Do you know these men and women writing their pop Christian songs on, on Caleb and we hum along and we sing along like they're worship leaders? Are they? Who ordained them God's worship leaders? The, the, the applications for us today to be true worshipers, to be faithful pursuers of of our Lord are very strong because the lack of truth, the lack of true knowledge, the lack of biblical mercy is something they don't even know they don't have until the prophet tells them. How do you know what you don't have? The prophet has to tell God's word has to reveal this. They're, they're traveling along, doing their thing, until the prophet says, you are going to destruction. And your destruction will be so severe, all of your children will be utterly and completely forgotten. No nation, no king, no future. These words are not meant to console the ignorant. They're not meant to make people happy and satisfied with where they're at and where they stand. They're meant to expose their sin and drive them to the Lord in repentance. They're meant to expose this people's averseness to truth. What kinds of truth offend us? Well, usually a lot of truth offends us, doesn't it? Sometimes a doctor will tell us something that offends us. Sometimes your friend in the Lord will tell you something that offends you. Is truth, does truth offend you or do you eat it like good medicine? Is truth something you welcome? Put yourself in the shoes of Israel who's listening to Hosea. And Hosea is telling them they're living like prostitutes. You have two choices. You take the bitter medicine and you say, this is where I'm at. Lord, teach me to love you. Or you say, shut up, Hosea. Who gave you the right to call me a prostitute? Love from God is patient. And this is the glorious aspect of this message. 
The love of God is patient and long-suffering. God loves this adulteress. The picture of the man Hosea who takes the woman Gomer to himself in this second time in chapter 4. She's with another man when he goes to get her. He buys her back to himself for a second time for 15 shekels of silver plus grain. The love of God reaching his hand out, reaching his heart out in love is patient and generous. The love of God is so kind until he must judge her. And this is the severe part of Hosea's message. If you read through Hosea this evening or read with me the passages, we will read the severity of judgment in the future for those who will not hear him is enough to make you cringe. The harshness of the judgment, the terror of the judgment that comes to her who will not repent is overwhelming. But his love waits. His love is patient. When we think about this prophecy from from our age, as the church looks at this, is the prostitute saved? Is the prostitute a Christian? The Lord's waiting for her to repent. This is a difficult thing for us to see. We don't see her as a nation that God is going to continue to love. What we see is someone who is eminently going to face his judgment. But he is waiting. Romans 2.4. What is he waiting for? Romans 2.4. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This is where she's at. God's love patiently extends repentance. Patiently extends hope. And some people look at this and they must hear. Listen to what you must hear. Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Is there breath in your lungs? Do you have a knowledge of the God who can say but refuse to turn to him in salvation? There in Romans, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God's long suffering is so that men would repent. Back in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2, bring charges against your mother. The children who are faithful children are to go speak to the mother and say, Mother, You are not his wife, and he is not your husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight. That means repent. Put away her adulteries from between her breasts. The ones who don't repent, the ones who will not repent, hear the most harsh, terrifying, I'm calling them promises. You might call them threats. They're promises. These are things God will do. They're horrible promises because of their terror. Look at what happens to the individuals ignoring God's love. 
Or they reply to God's love with ignorance. They refuse to know. Look at 4, 2 to 6 again. There's so many examples through this whole prophecy in Hosea. But look, by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn. Everyone who dwells there will waste away. That's a picture of lostness, utter lostness. With the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Let no man contend. Look at verse 5. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. And the prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. And I will destroy your mother. What happens when people stay in their ignorance? What happens when they won't listen? They're destroyed or perish or are cut off for their ignorance. You reject in one of two ways. You reject by saying no. You hear what's said and you say no. And you refuse or you ignore. That's the other way to reject what has been put forth to you in the form of truth, mercy, and the knowledge of God. You either say no, or you just ignore. There's two ways to reject the Lord in this. And this results in God's judgment, which is distance. It's loss of blessing. It's loss of his care. Now, interestingly, look at chapter 3, verse 4. The children of Israel... Chapter 3, verse 4. The children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children shall return and seek the Lord. Part of the judgment is a loss that results in a longing. No king means you don't have a nation. No, no ephod means you have no priest. It means you've lost your nation. It means you've lost your God. It means you're lost. You have nothing. It creates many days of longing, is what it says there. The children shall abide many days without king. How many days? The northern kingdom, when they finally are taken away, is 722. Has the northern kingdom had a king since 722 BC? No. How many days is that? 2,000 years is where we're at right now. Go back another 2,700 years. How many days are they without a king? How many days are they longing for their king? How hard is the judgment of God to those who will not hear him? It's likely every single one of your hearts is saying 27 years is a little bit too harsh. Why is this judgment so harsh? Why is this judgment so severe? That their longing would return to him. That their longing would return to the goodness and the kindness of his love. Some will long. Even many to this day have returned to their king. Many Jewish apostate men and women have returned to their Lord. 
and sought him for salvation. But they must know truth. They must know the knowledge of God and come to him on his terms to find this. Their glory, Israel's present glory as they're hearing the prophet is turned to shame. Turn back to Hosea chapter 4. We'll finish reading the chapter. Listen to their glory turned to shame. Listen to the threat of judgment that the nation hears through the prophet Hosea. Verse 7, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. Now that increase there is is something they want. It's something the nation wants. The nation Israel, watching themselves increase, sees themselves being blessed. The family who increases sees itself being blessed. And so what you're seeing when we read, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. The children produced from the godly marriage should produce glory and honor to God. But what is God saying in verse 7? The more they increased, the worse their offensiveness became against me. Not the more their greatness became before me. More godly children would result in more godly praise, more godly worship. But the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. Do you see the horribleness of that judgment? The the carnalness and the worldliness and the ungodliness of these people is going to become also just like the priest. And a nation of God who has a priest who is like this is utterly lost. How is the priest going to direct them back to God if the priest himself is as corrupt as the most corrupt man in the nation? It means this nation is utterly hopeless, utterly lost. It shall be like people, like priests, it said in verse 9, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops, burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. Don't be too misled or too distracted by the particulars of how their sins look to you. Most of us would say, well, this is also pagan-like. None of us could ever do anything like this. None of us are even remotely like this. We don't even know what a terebinth tree is. I'll explain to you a little bit more in a moment. What I want you to see is, is what we... What we are watching the nation do in this judgment is without truth, without mercy, and without the knowledge of God, what God is describing is how they have heaped up their sins in worship, how they've heaped up their sins in regular life. It's how horrible this nation has become. That's what we're seeing. 
Verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. So here's a little warning. Even the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, there's two tribes in the southern kingdom. They're given a little picture and they're, even though they see Israel is doing this, Judah's warned. Don't you copy them. Don't you be like them. Do not come up to Gilgal. Don't, don't come and share in this madness and this godlessness. Don't go up to Beth Aven, nor swear an oath, saying as the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So we see in verses 7 to 10, sin is simply disobedience to God, whatever form that comes in. We see there spelled out, sin is any disobedience to God. Forgetting the law means they have no resistance to sin. Without knowing God's law, you have no opposition to anything. That's the picture there. Interestingly, in verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. We see that some desires, some of the things that this people has pursued has taken over their heart like a slave is owned by a person. You see the word enslaved there. Some sins take ownership of you. Have you been owned by a sin before? Or something, it can be a substance, it can be alcohol, it can be marijuana, it could be purchasing. Things, or, or longing for things becomes a slave master to a man or to a woman. Here it's wine and new wine. It's They love wine and new wine so much they will do whatever they need to do to get it. They love it. They will partner with the pagans in their ceremonies to share in the wine and the new wine. They'll do whatever they need to get it. It's called harlotry here. They love it so much. Their hybrid religion, I keep calling it a hybrid religion because they're very religious. They use your words for God. They use some of the prayers they had learned through Moses. The idea of sacrifices. The idea of the priesthood, all of these things they have brought to themselves, it's a hybrid religion because they've taken these things and mixed it with the practices of their neighbors. And so we see for them it is a mixture of this outdoor shady pleasure. They take great pleasure in this thing that's in the shade of the day and those trees it mentioned, the use of incense and sacrifices or or. or mixed into their false, godless worship. 
They speak of an actual harlotry. Some of the pagan religions would have a, a, a professional religious harlot that was part of their worship processes, their worship activities. And look at what it says in verse 7. I will turn your glory, that is, the thing these people love, that is grand and wonderful to them, God says, I will turn to shame. Verse 9 says, I will punish. Verse 10 says, you will never be satisfied. Part of the judgment. They shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but they won't increase. The reason they are willing to make these compromises is so that they can have more. Either pleasure or stuff, but they won't increase. Look at the end of verse 14. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. That's a picture of them being just walked over, killed. Because they don't understand. They won't give themselves to truth. They won't give themselves to understanding the mercy or the knowledge of God. They are vigilant in religion. See this. They are active in their religion. Vigilant. Pursuing their religious activities and their pleasures. And they are aggressively They're running into the judgment of God and they don't know until the prophet tells them. They are racing for their judgment. Do you see how the warnings of judgment are even interwoven with the pictures of how they're practicing their sin and their rebellion to God? He says in verse 6, look at verse 6 again. It's an important verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Not hindered, not not wounded. They are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I will reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. The work of a Christian and Christian remembering It's crucial to your walk with God. It's crucial to your ability to be pleasing to the Lord. You must remember what has been revealed in order for you to be able to walk with the Lord. If you insist on making up your own thing, you're you're making up your own religion. We have to know what His Word says. We have the Bible to you and me is what the prophet is to the nation of Israel. If you will not hear the prophet, then you're making up your own thing. We have to understand this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God. Now, what joins truth and the knowledge of God? I I worded this question this way because there's these three words here. There's these three things that the nation of Israel do not have. Truth, mercy, and knowledge of God. What brings the truth and the knowledge of God together? 
They have rejected truth. We've seen that portrayed in their ignorance of the priest. They won't go to a real priest. They won't hear a real priest. And they're making up their own thing, their knowledge of God. They've forgotten. They've left it. Now, what is this thing in the middle? What is this thing that brings real truth and knowledge of God together in this prophecy? It's the mercy that they don't have either. This people has no mercy. And this godly virtue is particularly a virtue that must always be among God's people. It's a special characteristic of God's people. I'm going to show you this in a very interesting way. God himself is a God of mercy, and it's evident in the fact that he hasn't already killed the nation here. He is a God of mercy. The prophet exposes this neglected aspect in the people's lives who claim to know God, but they don't know him. He exposes their mercilessness and says, this is one of the indicators of your godlessness. Many times in the Psalms, many times in the writings of Scripture, you will see God's mercy talked to you or referred to in the writings in very tender in compassionate and kind ways. Psalm 4011 is one of maybe hundreds of examples. Psalm 4011 is the one praying, he says, do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. The one who truly knows and hopes in and is believing in him is banking on his tender mercies. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. What a prayer that pleads for God's mercies and his truth to preserve. We need his mercies. You need his mercies. You have no idea how you need the richness of the mercy of God. If we did not have the mercy of God right now, you would perish. Think about that. The mercy of God right now is why you do not perish. And this knowledge, this knowledge of the mercy of God tempers your harsh eye. It tempers your harsh mind, your harsh thinking. Christ himself refers to this section in Hosea at least twice in his ministry. This is very interesting to me. Christ brings the people in his day right back into the prophecy of Hosea on the subject of mercy. Hosea 6.6. We'll get there maybe next week. Look at the verse in Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see that? We're in the same prophecy, the same prophet, the same marriage, 
and it says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see those two phrases? Remember them. The Lord Jesus quotes these words twice in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus says, I wish you would learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Have you ever contemplated on the Lord's words? When he said this, have you ever thought, why did he say that? What does it mean that he wants mercy and not sacrifice? The Lord Jesus knew the Pharisees did not like it, that he would sit with men considered the the lowlifes in their culture, the sinners in their culture, tax collectors and sinners is how the the Pharisees referred to them. They didn't like it that the Lord Jesus claimed to be a man of God and would spend time with them. Matthew 9, 12. Matthew 9, 12 says, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, He heard their complaints about him spending time with his people. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now listen carefully. We're in the the home stretch of this service this morning. I want you to think and listen carefully in these last couple of minutes here. Why do religious people content themselves in selfishness and self-righteousness? That's what the Pharisees are like. Why do they content themselves in that state? Why are they content like that? Their love for God is for their own pleasure. It's for their own contentedness. Not for his glory. They don't love him for his glory. They don't long for his greatness and glory. They have no interest in sharing him and his offer of hope and salvation to other men. But love for God without love for men is not what God seeks. Love for God without a love for men is not what God seeks. And that's what we learn in this word, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. One who has received mercy from God will forever see and serve with mercy. If you have received mercy from God, if you understand what it meant to come to Him and seek forgiveness and find His mercy, you will forever see your fellow man as someone who needs His mercy. And your sharp eye will become a tiny bit less sharp. You must join your knowledge of truth, your knowledge of God, with the mercy of God in your interacting with men. If you have missed this, you have not known His love. And you have not known His forgiveness. Here's why I say that. So listen. This picture of a marriage... This picture of a marriage is of a woman who was loved so greatly that anything but reciprocating love has no explanation. Hosea taking Gomer is so incredibly generous and kind and rich that anything except her 
utter devotion and love back to her husband is unthinkable. That's what we're supposed to see in this marriage. She has produced not children that love her husband's great love and kindness. What are the children that have been produced of this marriage? Do they love their father? Do the children of this marriage love and adore their father and long to reproduce his greatness and his holiness and his beauty? Is that what these children are like? They're not. The woman is the nation. What does the nation produce? Love and adoration for God. Her children seek kingdom desire and life of another kingdom. These children don't love the kingdom of God. They don't love the greatness and the beauty of God. They love their own thing. They despise Him. Her children seek a whole other kingdom, not their father's kingdom. Her children have no mercy because they've never gone to him wanting or needing any mercy. They love themselves so much. They think so highly of themselves. They don't need any mercy from God. Her children are merciless. They don't know that it is the mercy of God that has brought them into such favor. They don't know that it is the mercy of God that brings rain in its season or puts food on their table or heals wounds when people are wounded. Her children are people of another world entirely. Her children love other ways, not the ways of their rich and generous father. They despise his precepts. They despise their father's precepts. They despise their father's manners. They've forgotten all of their father's ways. They've forgotten the mercy that was shown to their mother. They ignore the mercy and the kindness that was shown to their mother and that made them rich heirs. What kind of riches belonged to Israel when they became God's children? He redeemed them from Egypt. He gave them lands and riches. He gave them a king and promised them a king and a Messiah. What did they do with any of these promises, with any of these honors? They forgot all his ways. He had no love for their father. They had no mercy for men who had been ignorant like them. Instead, they joined the ignorance of their neighbors. They didn't tell their neighbors that they too could come to know the God who is their creator. Church. Church. Do you know who the Father is? Do you love the Father because of the great love with which the Father has loved? Do you love him like that? Do you devote time to know him so you know his ways, so you know his kingdom, so you know his loves? Do you devote time so that you know him and so that your love for him is actually a reflection of true love for him? Does he know you love him by your attention to him? Is that how he knows you love him? Because you seek him in his word and you tell him, You're sorry when you offend him and when you sin against him and you tell him 
Do you love Him for His goodness? Do you love with His love and speak with His mercies? God's church is precious to Him. He gave the blood of His Son to purchase the church. And the children of God need to know of His great love for His church. And therefore we love His church because it's precious to Him. It's how His children show their love of our Father and of His kingdom. Is this church precious to you? Oh, church, we must hear. We must know the great love of our Father and love Him the way He's revealed to us to love Him. Let's close in prayer and sing a a song together. Mighty God, we love You. I love You, dear Lord. I love You, Lord, for sending Your Son to the humiliation and the shame and the harm of men on this earth. I love You, God, for sending Your Son to bleed and atone for my sin. Oh, I praise You, Lord. I thank You for the prophet. I thank You for the prophets and their words. Oh, Lord, teach us. Teach our hearts and our minds to love You and to walk with You, Lord. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to sing uh, Ferris Lord Jesus together and then we'll be and we'll be done.